Okay. All right, we're going we're gonna to finish up, I think it's chapter 8, the super idols. Because uh, last week we didn't get a chance really to discuss her example um, of good citizenship. But before we actually do that, and in fact, uh, this handout I gave to you is not complete, but it's, it's going to be a great starter. Um, but before we do that, though, I'm going to read from Ephesians. I read it in chapel, but it's, it's kind of worth just taking a look at. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Um, mainly because it's, uh, it's a little longer than Ephesians 4, or Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Um, so last week, how do you tell time? And then how do you tell the times? And how do you tell time is by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Ephesians 1, uh, 7 through 10, you could go 3 through 10, but we're just going to go 7 through 10. In him, that means in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Uh, So the reason why I bring that up is because I think a few weeks ago, oops, uh, when we talked about the idol of plans, We kind of briefly discussed how we see plans very sequentially. You know, I'm going to plan the day today, right? What I first got to do. I got to first get the kids to school by 9.15. Then I got to head over to church and get the Bible study. And then after Bible study... I'm going to run a few errands, you know, so we just kind of see things going, whoop, you know, just down the line. Now, what we read in Ephesians, though, is a radically different way of understanding how to tell time. Okay, so we have something that fills up time, and that is Jesus. The plan, it says, uh, I think in verse 9, And then in 10, the fullness. See that? So God has a plan, and it's filled up. So the image I used last time was kind of like a circle. I don't know if you remember that. But, um, so you've got like a circle. That's the Jesus circle. Okay? But, since we all know that time does move forward, uh, it's kind of a... uh, a circle that kind of just keeps going, like a rolling ball in a sense. Yeah, it's slinky, although maybe yeah, I think it's more like a rolling ball. But anyways, so the ball just keeps moving. The thing is, though, within that though, that is that is kind of God's pl- God's plan is is in you know this circle. And inside the plan, though, you know, we have ourselves, you know, and we, we, we can move around a lot. We have a lot of freedom within that plan. But the plan, though, is kind of set. That's right. So, now, I mean, before we get to that, though, is that we have to kind of understand the success of the plan. Okay? I mean, is the plan successful? It is, because Jesus has already died and rose again. So our future is already set by our past. which is That's a peculiar way of understanding time, right? I mean, you kind of think about, I don't know what's going to happen next, but according to the fullness of time, so this whole time is filled up with something, and, it, and it's filled up with Jesus' uh, redemption. Like he said in the Bible. Call me crazy. But the Bible got a lot of good things to say. So having this... So this is how we tell time. 
so I can look at my watch, which I kind of described as chronos, and say, you know, an hour from now we'll be done. And, uh, you know, and then later today at whatever, 10 o'clock, I'm going to go to bed. But that, all that stuff that's in there is filled up with Jesus, and that's the kairos, and that's God's time. So I always tell time by the life and death of Jesus, which means then my kind of human time or earthly time is always filled up with good things, the redemption of Jesus. And that's that last, that Shirley just said, that last uh, phrase in verse 10. God sends Jesus, dies, rises again, gives us his redemption, fills up time, so not only um, forward but backwards. So everybody lived in the Old Testament, their time was filled up too with Jesus' death and resurrection. And, um, and then so that unites both heavenly and earthly things. So our life here on earth is filled up with heavenly things. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because, you know, in chapel we prayed for a lot of things that didn't seem very heavenly. Gun violence, all the crazy things that are happening in the world. So what we find out, though, is that our perception of things might be different than the reality of things. So we have this world view. We have to, we, so we are working on how we understand things or see things. And that's the telling of times. Like, how do we tell the times? And, um, and well, so here I, I give a little phrase here. How do you tell the times? By reading our watches. Now, I did, uh, that's metaphorically speaking. Our watches include, but not limited to, the news, the culture, the politics, education, science, I mean, you could, you could fill up stuff of this world through the lens of God's plan, then interpreting it. Oh, yeah, remember the circle of God's plan. So that's, that's what I just wrote. Okay, so how we tell the times is so we take all this information. And one of my challenges was last week was to challenge how we get that. How, we, how are we informed? And um, because... That's where Scalia talks about our super idols. And that's where she goes now from engagement to enthrallment, that whole section. And her uh, example was good citizenship. But before we get that, let's just kind of talk about engagement and enthrallment. Engagement means informed participation. And the challenge last year was we might have a lot of misinformation out there. So we're always at our, trying our best to think critically about what we're receiving as information. But what are we using to interpret this information? That goes back to what we talked about last week, is the full, what, what fills up time, and that's Jesus' death and resurrection. You could just say the good news, the gospel. Uh, you could talk about understanding times, biblically speaking. And there's a variety of ways of, of actually saying it. All right, so... Uh, informed participation, um, and one of the things I said last week is that you know reading the news is bad for your health. I uh, I still kind of stand by that, but news we always have to understand how we understand the news. Okay, but now the enthrallment, enthrallment though. When I first read it, I'm like enthralled. I I always understood that word as being a positive, right? Something I'm very I'm kind of charmed by. Well, so I had to look it up in the dictionary to make sure that I was understanding her. And I didn't realize there's two, there's actually two definitions. There's one, uh, the charming, kind of a very positive understanding. And then there is also the, the put into slavery or subjugate. So I kind of played on the words captivate or captive. And what she's mainly talking about is being held captive. The, the, the kind of the negative aspect. All right, so, and what we find out, there's a thin line between these, informed participation and then simply being enthralled by something. 
and that is where things kind of change from being a good thing to being a super idol. So she, she says, good citizenship is a virtue, and in order to practice it, after all, one must be informed, passionate, and willing to participate in the process. Well, I agree, but only to a point. Informed participation, it seems to me, is largely a positive thing, while enthrallment becomes something else. So these three things, informed, passionate, willing to participate. And I, um, I kind of took it as, um, well, anyway, so I did a little research a few weeks ago about voting and how people vote. And I kept on coming across this perception that young people don't participate in uh, politics, but the statistics actually don't prove that. So again, I like to use, I, I like to use facts. So uh, according to the facts, um, young people are as, as informed as uh, anybody else. And we showed that last week, right? Because people who watch nightly news, <laughs> you, can, you, can be, you can be just as informed about the world events by watching the daily show than watching CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, ABC, all that. And um, so anyways, so young people are as informed as, as anybody else, any other generation. So there goes that part. Now whether you have to ask yourself, uh, is anybody informed? That's another question. But um, passionate, and young people actually tend to be just kind of naturally passionate. So think about, I just, I kind of wrote this out. Uh, think about the age of those who are arrested for civil disobedience in the United States. It's generally college age people, right? Well, and it, the cynical side would say, because they don't have jobs, they can go do that. That's actually true now because the younger people are, are the, the, the highest unemployment amongst the younger people. So where I think some people cynically use it as an excuse, I would say you might want to rethink that because they might be doing that because they're unemployed. Okay, anyways, but that's beside the point. But yeah, go back, you know, to the baby boomer generation, right? And protests. Go to, go to Egypt. Go to Ukraine. All these places where you have all these, and you look at it, and it, you know, you mainly have young people. Uh, and then participate. This is one of the interesting, most interesting things. In 2012, uh, Young people, which would be, I, th I don't think I'm technically a young person anymore. 20 to 35, I think, is the age. I'm in a different category now. So, uh, at least in this poll, I think it was. Uh, they made up 20% of the voters. Uh, and what's interesting is, is that they, they voted at a higher rate than other age groups because they could only make up 21% of the actual eligible voters, and 19% voted. So that, that's a pretty high rate. So they actually, they do participate as much as anybody else. Now, one of the interesting things in this Pew, it was a Pew Research uh, study, Pew Research, P-E-W, um, is a very well-known uh, research organization, and they, they do a lot of different kinds of uh, researching and polling. They uh, oftentimes studying actually religious faith, but not this one. This is just about voters. One of the interesting things from the guy who did the study, he, he uh, it came to know to them, and I, I kind of condensed this, is that young people, um, when they engage, when they participate, they're not interested in spoiling anything for anybody. Where the baby boomers, their parents, when they went to participate, they were all about not trusting those over 30. Well, exactly. So this is kind of interesting. Um, anyways, so the whole point, though, is young people participate. They're much interested in negotiating rather than fighting. So, anyways, I bring this up is because... Um, uh, it seems to me as if you watch the news, 
you have a whole kind of worldview that is pretty negative on certain things. But the statistics kind of play out where it's actually not as negative as one might perceive. Yeah. But not so much as negative, it's what they suggest. I mean, it's all mainstream. Well, right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's why how we understand. So her, her Scalia's whole point, though, is good citizenship is being informed, being passionate, and participating. And to a certain extent, um, everyone's kind of in the same boat. Rather than having a certain amount of group of people kind of say, oh, man, what's wrong with these people? They're not helping the process. Well, actually, they are engaging in the process, but they're doing it in a way that might actually undermine those who are in kind of power or authority. That, oh, yeah, so that, that would be the other level is where we get this. Yeah, exactly. So what we find out is, is that um, people are going other places to be informed, to be passionate, and to participate. Things aren't as they used to be. So that's about telling the times. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, actually, how, how, how young people, in terms of just kind of what the, these, these uh, studies I read was that we find out that uh, young do participate in the voting, but on another level, they're going in a different direction in terms of, like, uh, how you organize and what would be the main uh uh, venue or channel of organization now yeah right social media Twitter Facebook and so that has created a whole different kind of level of participation that on a certain level is outside the past or the mainstream and you kind of, if you were just kind of in popular ways you see how like especially in 2008 how Obama was this he, he really he was perceived as really utilizing social media in a new way. I, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but um, it, for me, it sounded like old fuddy-duddies, you know, reporting the news where you had a bunch of other people who were like, well, you know, this has been going on for a while already. <laughs> you know, and they're just kind of catching in on the whole thing. So, um, so anyways, th that, uh, so you see like kind of um, the, the establishment trying to now influence this whole new way of doing things. And um, so that would be the new opportunities that you maybe mentioned, Krista. But in terms of, so you have young people who are participating on a whole different level. And one I would say is, is a lot more grassroots. Oh, I didn't bring it in. Um, uh, so you see certain, uh, so there's a magazine called Good, Good Magazine. I, I, I subscribe to it. and. It is all. It's it's really caters to a a younger cohort that has values in terms of civil participation that literally is outside the the establishment. So you have young people who establish kind of grassroots organizations to do something. So their main thing is not becoming part of the Republican Party, Democratic Party, or like government. Their main job is to actually do something. And what has found out was is the government now are actually trying to get in with it. Well, uh, now the thing is though is that well, young people though this is another thing from the Pew Research is that they see they actually do see government as a means to get things done. Like, it, it, it can happen that way. And that's why most of the young people vote which party? Democrat. Where, you know, Republican Party sees government as kind of like getting in the way of things. You know, most young people see government as, yeah, that is a means to get things done. However, that actually is not, that's not actually the case in terms of their best venue. Like that's the, the best way to do it. So, anyways, um, so yeah, you so you have a whole. Uh, in fact, what's happened now? There was a meeting in Washington a few weeks ago, 
where President Obama invited these billionaires who are young. Yeah. <laughs> it was very interesting to read the article. And it was written by, it was closed to the media, but one of the uh, people in the meeting was the heir of the Johnson & Johnson fortune. And he actually, there's two documentaries that he made about being rich. Uh, they're, they're, they're not really well made, but it, it's kind of interesting because he confronts his parents with a lot of things because his, his dad is all about protecting his money. But when he was, he's a baby boomer, when he was a young guy, he was all about trying to help uh, the poor in Africa and so his son is trying to say, what happened, Dad? And his dad's like, I don't want to talk about this. Because he's being, he's being confronted with the, what's happened to him. Anyways, so he actually wrote the article. And, uh, and so he did an interview. He did, and it was all a, a guest piece. Like it, he, yeah. so, but what he's, it was interesting, though, because every one of these people were invited, and every one of them talked about uh, how their money can be used for social impact and a, and a financial return. Now, he asked the question, can that actually happen? But he thinks they can. But anyways, that just gives a perception, though, about like how, how to tell the times, and then well, how do you, like, what are you going to do about it? Anyways, so that, the whole point, though, is, is that enthrallment is that the, you have a, a whole other group of people who um, see the world very differently than the previous generation. And Scalia, I think, when she brings up these issues, is she's kind of describing those who are kind of in power right now. And not necessarily, so it, I'm, I'm trying to have this kind of think outside the box. So the idea is that um, um, enthrallment engages the heart but lacks grace and the consequences of losing the sight of the inherent dignity of the human person. And that's one of the things that as you read about young people and they're informed and trying to be informed and participate, they're all about maintaining human dignity. So they don't want to, they don't want to have arguments that you see like on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. Like, they don't want to engage that way. Because if you do watch them, the arguments aren't really fact-based. Uh, and, yeah, they're very emotional and personal. Ed Hahnemann, I think is how you, you describe it. Um, and, and one of the interesting things is... Uh, the Daily Show, if you ever watch The Daily Show, they, that, that's their bread and butter right there. They actually, that, they spend a lot of their time talking about how MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News actually don't, don't actually talk about facts. They talk about their own kind of thing. I watched it the other night. It was pretty funny. But uh, they diagnosed this uh, thing about, there's some rancher down in Texas who does not want to pay... Or Nevada, yeah, he doesn't want to pay these fines. He's like basically using federal land free of money, and he doesn't want to pay the the grazing rights or something. It was hilarious. I laughed very hard because um, certain people were talking about uh, like the Constitution, but yet the early ch uh, early church fathers, so the early American fathers, George Washington. There was a whole there was a whole group of people who didn't do this. And guess what George Washington did? Uh, they didn't pay taxes. It was, uh, it was a whiskey thing about whiskey. Yeah, and, and he came in and he destroyed, like, he destroyed everything. It was hilarious. And there was people talking about, like, the overreach of the federal government, and they were cowling upon, like, the early American fathers. It was hilarious because those were, like, the facts, and, and you know, the news didn't really interpret it that way. So anyways, but that, that, the important thing, though, is, is that um, as, we, as we kind of take a look at the world, we maintain Jesus' death and resurrection, which then upholds the, the human person. And I think, you know, Bobby's prayer request this morning was a, was a great request because I think it demonstrates what happens, the pain and suffering that we can feel when the dignity of the human person is lost. And that, that's a good thing. We should feel that way. Um, 
Anyways, so she had a lot of interesting words, uh, Scalia did, on, on page 109 and 110 about how when we um, slip into the super idol, we lose the human aspect or the human dignity. Well, yeah, you don't lose your values. You get a whole, whole, whole different set of, yeah, yeah. different set of new values where... Right. Mm -hmm. And she said, and that's, I think I wrote that in there, right? So, yeah, oh yeah, so our uh, spiritually deforming hatred is often conceived in love. We love our country, we love our community, we love our church, we love our traditions, we love our perce perception of ourselves, which uh, doesn't really follow, because that's, I think, kind of more negative. <laughs> and we love life, we love babies. And then she really demonstrates how these good things become all-consuming to the detriment of the human person. And she gives that example of how that pro-lifer basically is happy that Betty Ford dies. That kind of made me sad, man, when you're reading that. I made me, that made me feel terrible. Yeah. Right. Uh, or the uh, Westboro Baptist people and their uh, fight against the homosexual agenda. No mercy. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's pure hatred. I, I mean, obviously we can see that, right? I mean, okay, that's easy to see. But, you know, the... the, the Oh, no. So they become the judge, the executioner, the whole nine yards. But yeah, I mean, but part of that is that when we read that, we're like, we're shocked. The question would be whether there is that any of that, any of that stuff is, is in us. And if it is, maybe it's not to that extent, but maybe we're in that line of thinking, and we always have to kind of be aware of it. Um, yeah, because, I mean, she... Uh, Scalia brings out these three things about if this pro-life person who basically was kind of glad that Betty Ford died, there's three things, yeah, there's, there's consequences of that line of thought. Um, yeah, the, the totality of the human person is meaningless because you see this one person through this one thing, you know, you know, of course, I mean, the joke is, right, I mean, you don't talk about uh, politics or religion, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you find out, you know, if you're a Republican, you find out a person is a Democrat, then, you know, right, forget about it. You know, and if, if, you, you know, if you're Lutheran and you find out somebody's, like, Roman Catholic, forget about it, right? I mean, or, you know, or whatever. Um, and, but that doesn't take the totality of, of a person's life. Yeah. And that's not good. Um, uh, okay, the reducing the worth of the human being to their, and it's often, often poorly thought out, political positions is acceptable. Uh, I mean, this is really important. And I actually, that's one part that I didn't, I, I didn't want to put in there because it was too long. I didn't have enough time to edit it down. The uh, Pope's, he, he gave this pronouncement back in November um, is about the joy of the gospel. And there's this section about the poor and the economy later on. And he basically condemns Reaganomics. He con condemns a lot of, like, kind of how we understand capitalism. And the guy, the article says he would be left of, like, his, his uh, economic policies would be left of Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's pretty left, right? Um, okay, so if we just took that, then we label the Pope a uh, liberal, you know, yeah, economy, socialist, or whatever we want to call him. But then, of course, now he, he you know, he, he also is, you know, later on, this, it's not encyclical, it's an apostolic exhortation. He, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's against abortion, and, you know, uh, the understanding of, he has the right understanding of marriage and so 
I mean, he doesn't really fit into any kind of political party in the United States, right? He makes everybody upset, if you want to uh, see it that way. Well, that's exa so that's the thing. So, like, so if you understood him politically speaking, you find him. You can easy. You can easily condemn him. And that uh, that's this article. It's from the week. I think I mentioned that last week. Uh, it, 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 that's his whole point. It's basically you, you can't fit you can't fit the pope in a political party. And to a certain extent, I'm not I'm not advocating the post position. All I'm advocating is that as Christians, we don't see ourselves politically. We see under, we understand ourselves. Christianly, or, or as as Jesus, as the you know the the fullness of time, and that's not going to fit all the time perfectly inside political parties. It just won't. All right, and then and then uh, the death of an ideological opponent can be shrugged off for the cause, whatever the cause may be. And that's simply unacceptable. Uh, the lit, no, the, the pro-life lady is no longer pro-life. Mary, you were to say something. Well, there's always a critique to everything. In fact, uh, I mean, there was the bishop, the the bishop in Germany, and then we talked about the pastors of L.A. last week. Yeah, the the bishop from uh, Germany, which I'm sure you read about. I mean, he's like he was a millionaire. Oh, he was a big time millionaire. So. Well, I don't think he actually owns that mansion. Where the bishop in Germany, he had this. Yeah, it was it was nice. But the LA, the LA uh, preachers of LA, not to bang, bang it just on the Roman Catholics, but the preachers of LA, that was the whole thing I mentioned last week about how these, this guy's driving in the Mercedes. Did anybody check that out by the way last week? Uh, driving in the Mercedes Benz, and he's like, I just like nice things, like you know that's, yeah, the pastor, like you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did you check it out? I, I can't remember. I was, I was so offended by it. And then there's a whole a bunch of moral issues with that. I mean, aside from yeah. just the economics. But. Yeah, right. Okay, anyways. So the whole point, though, is, is that as we establish these super idols, we then start defining our lives according to them, where we're just simply, we, we, can't, see, we can't see anything except for what's in here. Um, and uh, the Betty Ford bit is really interesting because the pro-lifer, uh, I listed these two things. One was the Virginia Tech shootings from uh, several years ago. And there was a great uh, piece, I can't remember where I read it, and I can't find it. And the guy who wrote it asked this question, Do you, did you light 32 candles or 33 candles? Right. I mean, Christianly, it should be 33 candles for actually the shooter who uh, shot himself. And then the Boston Marathon bombings, the burials. I mean, that was that. I think we read that. We put that in the margin comments. I think um, how this Christian lady, <laughs> this person needs to have a burial, and so she worked it out. I mean, that was fascinating. Those are all like great examples of being pro-life in the best sense, you know. Because it well, first of all, it takes it takes the whole thing. So, like, uh, let's take the Virginia Tech shootings. We had a talk about this on the seminary campus. That was that happened in my fourth year. We uh, we had a little discussion about that, and um, you know, well, presuming that you know, lighting a candle is a good thing and all that. I mean, that that let's just presume that's all nice. Um, the idea that you would light the candle for the murderer. And that doesn't actually disrespect those he murdered. Which, that was some of the seminarians were like, you can't include them together. Uh, but, yeah, but that line of thinking, though, was pretty prevalent, actually, up through even the Middle Ages, up through the 20th century, because where would uh, people who committed suicide, where would they be buried? Yeah, some other special place, right? Or, or I mean, yeah, yeah, right. 
Yeah, the German bishop. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and so this is a great thing, though. Okay. So. Um, all right. So so let's let's make sure. Okay. So the the whole the whole thinking though in terms of. Uh, well, pro-life or just all this stuff. It, it was, she, Scalia, without actually doing a great job of making this specific, she contrasts that with Anne Rice. I don't know the Anne Rice comments about like she had to like be free from the church. But Scalia's comments on that are, are really great, I thought, because she did a good job of demonstrating how someone who comes from like a more liberal perspective can have these same super idols as somebody from a very you know, conservative perspective. And what she says of Anne Rice, though, was is that Anne Rice's perception of the church, a caricature of the church, she's against a caricature of the church uh, because Anne Rice saw the church as being, like, anti-life rather than pro-life. And when I say pro-life, I mean just kind of the technical sense, like, for life, not as a, you know, uh, yeah, abortion, pro-life thing. So as, as a life-giving entity, and so Scalia's response is basically the church is extremely about life-giving realities. And with that, though, of course, is the plan, right? The plan that Jesus Christ, I came to give life and give it abundantly. I died to give eternal life. You know, I rose again. And so within this context, then, now we have what Krista brings up is how we set our life within that context, including our financial lives economically. And what Scalia and I would say the church in general is to promote that we actually don't live in an economy of scarcity, theoretically speaking, but in a, in a world of abundance. Scarcity, though, is created by who? Well, war, I'm thinking just more kind of generally speaking. Well, yeah, and, and people who what? Who hoard it? I mean, this is this is part this is part of what that I just I, I always find kind of I'm, I'm always bummed out about is that I mean there is I mean there's enough resources to go around you know and so many go without and uh, one of the yeah, um, not to get too much on a tangent here, but the the idea is, is that um, well, just since we're talking about the Pope's uh, thing, he you know he basically says you know there uh, the idea that if you give wealth wealth to this group up here, eventually it will come down to the to the lower parts. And there is a way you can argue that actually has happened. But what really has happened is only to a certain amount of people, wealth has increased uh, on the lower level. And you could say, the, like, for instance, the United States. I mean, relatively speaking, if you just show up in the United States, you have access to better health care than a lot of people in the world. Even if you have, like, no money. But... But that's again. But what we what statistically it's found out is that those who appear, it's actually the gap has increased dramatically. And Forbes, I think, just printed out like a month ago or so, like you know the increase of billionaires in the world and you know all that stuff. So, anyways, so what we find out though is so that whole point though is is that I mean there's there's a lot of this resources available. But now it's being caught up in, in, in few. It's not being shared. Not now. I sound like a socialist, but yes. Okay, that's true. That's true. So what Scalia's whole point, though, especially on the good citizenship, and she dabbles a little bit into the economy, is is how. Okay, we have to ask ourselves, what is a company for? Like, what are these things for? 
And if the pri and this primary purpose would be to make money, there's going to be some more. There's going to be some problems eventually, because you could have someone make a lot of money, but all that money would be, yeah, in that in those themselves. So, I mean, so you have to always you know, so we talk especially within Lutheranism we have this great doctrine of vocation, of how we understand ourselves kind of in terms of our day-to-day job understanding. And, and as a company owner, you know, okay, then how do you do this? By the way, I mean, there's a great long history, too. Uh, Augustine, Cyprian, um, John Chrysostom. There's a lot of, there was a lot of rich people back in the Roman times, too. And they would always ask, you know, what's your wealth for? What's your money for? And their whole point would be, your money is for sharing, to make it as simple as possible. So they were never condemning rich people. They, yeah, I mean, and, and actually, just, just to give the Pope some credit, he also does not condemn rich people. He, at the end, he talks about how rich people are vital to, because the idea is that, yeah, so there's always going to be wealthy people. But the question is, as a wealthy person, how do you handle your, your resources Christianly, and that—that's where there's a lot. Of, I mean, there's a lot of like questions, like serious questions that we can ask very wealthy people, and we're talking very wealthy. I mean, uh, well, okay, so the 99 percent, right? That—that that was that whole Occupy Wall Street business. You know, it's actually not 99. It's like 99.9 percent to the 0.1 percent. There is there. I mean, that, and that's what a lot of people don't quite understand is that. There is a group of people that are like, they hold a lot of the world's money. <laughs> Lots. So, so, we don't even really understand what rich even means, I guess. <laughs> in a sense, so. Yeah, right. Your money's mine. Yeah, sure, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's always defined according to God's plan or purpose, right? I mean, th this is the whole thing, is that um, we don't have a super idol. We have a super God, in a sense, that is all-encompassing in every point of our life, and that whatever God touches goes according to his purpose. And, and that, uh, we never got, I never finished that thought, is so when Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 10, uniting things of heaven and earth, what does that sound like? Something that we pray all the time. The Lord's Prayer, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we have this, this kind of uh, purpose filled up here on our earthly things. And that's oftentimes we kind of just, we don't even like kind of think about it. Because we kind of receive whatever's been told of us about how we should handle our money, how we should handle our uh, uh, patriotism, um, you know, because I mean, our citizenship though is not okay. What's our primary citizenship as Christians? Ha, ha, well, yeah, but I mean, like, uh, is it America or is it heaven? Is it the world or is it heaven? It's heaven. We have a heavenly citizenship. That's who we are. That doesn't necessarily go against our our citizenship as Americans. It's just that we, as Christians, are wayfaring strangers. We are in a place where we are looking towards heaven as our home, not here. And so, uh, anyway, so, so all these things that we have to start thinking about, how we understand uh, politics, the economy, our citizenship, um, we have to just ask, we can't just let, we just can't not ask questions about it. Rachel. I find this to be a very Yeah, right. Right. That's right. Oh, yeah. Well, read the Bible, right? There's a lot of examples of that. Right. You know, there's no, I'm never going to vote for anyone. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, this is, so this, that's, 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 I think, the whole part for the last two weeks is just simply asking those questions. Um, because I, I'm always concerned about people who never ask the question. And to be honest, here in the United States, 
actually, this Pew Research study was very interesting. This is the way he described it. Because the person who asked them this question was very interesting. He's like, let's say a candidate goes forward and says, um, uh, he says, I'm very, I don't, it, I, it just coincided with me reading the Pope's article. But he says, let's say there's this candidate who's very uh, Roman Catholic and says, um, he's going to kind of talk about redistribution of wealth. But at the same time, he's, you know, he's uh, against, uh, you know, gay marriage and he's very pro-life and all that. Um, do you think that, you know, how, how would, you know, how would that work with voters? And the guy said, well, first of all, I don't think that would ever happen. He said, but considering, he goes, rather than just simply not voting, he says it's best to vote for the least bad candidate. Just from a civil perspective. And I, I thought that's very interesting because my Christian size is, I'm just going to trust in God and not worry about it. You know, I'm not going to participate. Uh, but I have participated. Right. I'm voting, don't worry. But um, maybe not always in the local elections, but, you know, county clerk, I don't always vote for that. But, but anyways, but the whole point is, is that as a Christian then, so we understand these two candidates, well, you know, let's just make it real simple. The president, presidential, two candidates, maybe a third random one. Um, you, you say to yourself, I can't, I can't in good conscience do this. Okay, that's okay. That's basically what he's saying is, all right, get over it. And it's, you need to participate because if you don't participate, then you really are outside the realm of, of being a uh, society, in a sense. Like being a good neighbor. You don't take any ownership. Well, ownership or just, yeah, just this whole understanding of informed participation. You have to part, as good citizen, or being a Christian, you have to participate in life. And that's one of the ways that he participates. And so that, that, I think that's kind of a good way to kind of see it, is that you go into the polling place realizing, well, maybe that's a more, I mean, that's probably a cynical way of saying it, but the, the idea is that you're not voting for something perfect. And maybe that's, maybe that's a more generous way of saying it. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Right. Right, right. I understand. And, and, but see, that, that's really important, though. As Christians, though, we're always asking these questions because what we found out over the last 40 years, or yeah, yeah about 40 years, 30 years, is that there is a whole slew of Christians in this United States that basically have not asked that question and have only voted one way, for better or for worse. And I think if you really seriously kind of consider that, on a certain level, that's great, right? I mean, we've, uh, there's been um, a lot of great things done in terms of pro-life movement, but at other times there's been a lot of, you know, kind of not-so-great things. And if, you know, so we have to kind of ask ourselves as Christians, you know, what's our role in this way? Too, by the way, but also seeing our lives in, in terms of uh, citizenship in heaven, the reason why I kind of mentioned that, though, is, is that when we come across Christians in other societies, so like in a communist society or, um, you know, a dictator, we, we, uh, we have something to relate to. Because we are together. We're citizens of the same kingdom. And so that brings up empathy, and, and, and we don't necessarily, as we talk to them, project our American ideas on them as like, hey, you should, too bad your country's not like, like us. On a certain level, that's pretty good. I, I think that's good. I mean, we should, we should say, hey, too bad you're not like us, because, you know, America's a great place, but... It's not a perfect place. And so, um, anyways, there you go. Donna. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and a, lot of, a lot of our discussion over Lent uh, about kind of understanding love, I mean, so the, so the almsgiving and tithing, if, if, you know, if you actually watch the videos, it was all about loving your neighbor with money. That was the whole, the whole shtick, uh, because I felt that was the best way of kind of talking about it, is that we aren't giving to the church in terms of, uh, 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 like, hey, that's another thing to check off. 
but we actually are participating in loving by 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 giving money to the church and and so uh, you know we read the TV screens and all that stuff I mean all the things that st. John is is trying to how we are trying to love our neighbor with money you know and so that I think that's a that's a real that's a real easy way to understand how your money goes to love people you know, a lot of people want to know that right like if I give money to this organization I kind of want to know what happens to it I think that's right. Yep. Yeah, it's just something that you just you should start doing today. Well, why not? I mean, just just to the best of your ability, uh, try try to gather yourself around Jesus. You know, I think Pastor Music had the orbiting right, orbiting around Christ, right? So, um, yeah, and your money needs to do that. I mean, I, a couple of weeks ago, I had a wedding, and somebody from out of town. You know, came to this wedding, and they're like, "No wonder you why you talk about money so much." It's like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> yeah, right. And I, oh, it's yeah, because of the sermon I preached at the wedding. I said, I said, uh, God's bookkeeping is is different than the world's bookkeeping. One plus one equals one, and one minus one is is uh, two, and all this other stuff. She's like. I wonder why you keep money, keep talking about money. You keep, you, the, math, the way you do math around here, you have to keep talking about money. Like, you know, we can't keep track of money. Um, but, that, but that whole scenario, that cynicism against the whole thing was you're projecting the L.A. preachers and, you know, the bishops of uh, wherever that, I can't remember. Where, where in Germany was? Okay. Um, upon us, like, I mean... That's why we keep saying, uh, whatever, $120,000 have gone away. I mean, not for us. And when you have to pay for the bill, I mean, you have to do all those kind of expenses. But really, those are very easily, should be easily measured. And as we talk about loving our neighbor with money, it's that other aspect that should just keep increasing in terms of, you know, because, I mean, the salary's paid for, the building's paid for. I mean, you don't. Well, yeah, right. That, yeah, that's, yeah. But, I mean, but that's a good thing, though, about St. John, though, in terms of what Donna is saying, though, is that we have a lot of people participating in the process. And, I mean, the other thing, too, though, is if you want to participate, yeah. Again, I would say informed. Informed would be best, and that's probably part of the education that if people want to participate, you do have to be informed before you say, hey, we should just give, you know, why don't we, why don't we build a, a, a church for such and such in that country as if we can just do it? Like, I mean, like uh, the Siberians, you can't just go build a building there because I, I can guarantee most of your money will not go to the building because the mafia will show up. So, I mean, you just can't do things. So, you know, I mean, that's. Okay, anyways, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.